You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Now we're getting into some meat of derm surgery here. We're going to talk about advanced closures, flaps, grafts, and advanced suturing. Thankfully, Dr. Carr covered a lot of suturing in his talk, and so that part we can, we can kind of skip through some of it that's duplicated. I know we're slotted to go till 5.30 today, but with the reception at 5, maybe, maybe we'll get you out earlier. I don't have any disclosures relevant to this talk. Pretest. Y'all ready for a pretest? <laughs> All right. Let's think about grafts. Totally shifting gears. No more herpes, okay? So, what's the advantage of a full thickness skin graft over a split thickness skin graft? A, full thickness skin graft has better survival over low blood supply areas. B, full thickness skin graft has better cosmesis. C, full thickness skin graft can cover larger areas of the body. D, full thickness skin graft can be used over exposed bone or cartilage. Or E, full thickness skin graft contracts more than split thickness skin graft. So what's the advantage of the full thickness? Okay, we'll see how your answers change. Pre-test two. Which is not considered a type of transposition flap? A rhombic flap, a bilobed flap, an A to T flap, or a nasolabial flap? Here's an easy one. What is the main advantage of this suturing technique? This is a running simple suture. A, hemostasis. B, wound eversion. C, speed of placement. So let's talk about grafts. Why do we do skin grafts? When would we choose to do a graft? I agree with Dr. Carr. Keep it simple. You know, if you can let something just heal in, let it heal in. If it makes sense to do a complex repair and just pull it together, do that. When do we think about grafts? We think about grafts when the wound bed is shallow, when there's close proximity to a free margin, like a lip or an eyelid sometimes, um, or if there's inadequate local tissue supply for a flap, that's a common reason to do this. And really in derm surgery, we do two kinds of, of skin grafts most commonly. Um, the first is full thickness skin graft. So full thickness means you've got all the epidermis and you've got the full dermis, all the way down to the base of the dermis, right at the junction of the fat. Um, so Within there, you have all the adnectal structures, right? You have hair follicles, all the stuff that's in the dermis is still in there. Um, so that is kind of a thick piece of tissue. It requires a good blood supply, 
Um, so the wound bed has to have a good blood supply for this to survive. It doesn't contract. That was one of the questions some of you missed. Um, it doesn't contract the way that a split thickness will. It will contract a little bit, maybe about 10%. And cosmetically, it looks, it looks much better than split thickness because it has all of those adnexal structures that are all part of the dermis. It gives it a nice thickness. It gives it the hair follicles and the pores, and it just looks better. A split thickness skin graft, on the other hand, is cut just in the superficial part of the dermis. So you lose a lot of those adnexal structures. Um, because of that, it doesn't look as pretty. Um, but it doesn't require as much blood supply either. So it's good for covering areas where you don't have a good blood supply in the wound. Um, these do contract a lot more than the full thickness skin graft. So be careful if you're by a free margin that you're not going to cause you know, a nose room to pull up or a lip to pull down or an eyelid to pull down. Um, split thickness skin grafts do have the advantage of allowing for better tumor surveillance. So if you're worried that a tumor is going to recur, um, you know, first choice might be to let it heal in naturally. But if that's not a good choice for whatever reason, then a split thickness graft might give you better surveillance for recurrence than a full thickness, which would hide it. When you think about skin grafts, you need to remember that there's a timeline um, over which these grafts heal. And that's important because if a patient comes into the clinic at post-op day two versus post-op day five, you need to understand where they are in the healing process so that you handle their wound appropriately. So we teach these to our dermatology residents. These are on the derm boards. Um, the first stage is called imbibition. And this is the first 24 hours after you put a graft on the wound bed. There's no vascular connection at this point. So all it is is like fibrin proteins coming in there that's basically kind of gluing this down so the graft will stick to the wound bed. That's why it's so important to have a good pressure dressing on these grafts. You really need to, to push that graft right onto the wound bed. And sometimes we do that with bolsters that are sewn on. Sometimes they're more taped on. Um, but it's important to have good pressure there for this stage. The next stage is called inosculation. And that's two to three days after the surgery. This is when you start to get these blood vessels. Vessels come from the graft and start to look for a root underneath. And from the womb bed, they come up and they start to look for anastomoses. Um, then over the next several days, you have epidermal proliferation, where the, the epidermis is proliferating and starting to, to blend in. Um, and for the first week, you, at a week, you have neovascularization. You've got good circulation in there now. So when you're seeing patients back a week after a skin graft, the color should be looking good. It should look like it's getting a good blood supply um, because of this neovascularization. Sensory reinnervation is the last thing, and that starts at two weeks, but it can take months and months and months. So a lot of times with the skin graft, people complain, oh, I can't feel that part of my nose or whatever. Um, but it does come back. It just takes time. So sometimes grafts fail, and we want to do everything we can to prevent this. So we need to think about why do they fail? And what we teach our residents is the five Bs for bed, blood, bug, bad host, and bum techniques. So we'll go through some of these. Um, bed is for the wound bed, the wound that you're putting the graft into. 
if there's a hematoma or a seroma, some fluid that's separating the graft from the wound bed, um, that's going to be a problem because you won't get the adherence. Same with shearing forces. If you don't bandage it well and there's something causing it to shear off, then you're not going to have a, a good adhesion. Uh, blood is inadequate blood supply or nicotine vasoconstriction. Grafts are a poor, poor choice for smokers. Don't graft your smokers if you can avoid it at any cost because they're likely to fail. Um, but also, you know, if you don't have a good blood supply because you're on maybe exposed cartilage or exposed bone, um, then that can be a reason for grafts to fail. Next is bug or infection. Um, that kind of speaks for itself, right? If you get an infection under the graft, it's not going to survive. Bad host, that also goes back to smoking. But other things that make people poor wound healers in general, like severe cardiovascular disease or diabetes or immunosuppression, um, can all contribute to failure of the graft. And then the last one is bum technique. Um, and that's when the graft itself has been not treated well. This is delicate tissue. Um, so if, it's, if you handle it a lot or you leave it sitting on a tray or something or you're crushing it with your forceps, um, it can make it not survive. And also if you stretch it out too much so it's too tight um, or if you don't thin all the fat off the base. Um, you know, when we take a full thickness skin graft, there's some fat usually stuck on the bottom. So we'll flip it over and we'll trim it down so we just see nice clean white dermis. So here you can see the plane where we cut our full thickness skin grafts, again, right under the dermis. And you see the little bit of yellow fat on here. Um, all that has to be trimmed off in order to get a good, uh, clean dermis on the base of the graft so that it will survive. Mostly, we use full thickness grafts because they look better. But there are some situations where a split thickness graft makes more sense. Usually this is if you have a large area to cover um, or a poor blood supply, um, maybe exposed bone on the scalp, maybe a large wound on the leg. And our, um, our colleagues in plastics love to use these for burns, you know, to cover large burns. We harvest these with something called a dermatome. That's the picture on the top there. And this is this big, noisy device. It's kind of intimidating to patients, you know. Um, because our patients are generally awake, right, in dermatology. Plastics doesn't have this problem because they put their patients to sleep. They never see that dermatome coming at them. Um, but we have to prepare our patients if we're going to harvest a graft. Typically, I'll harvest from the upper thigh here. Um, it's a lot of hippoclins to prep the area. We put a lot of tension on the area. And then the harvesting itself takes like five seconds. <laughs> it doesn't take long at all. Um, but you have to prepare the patient to expect the noise of this device and um, train your staff how to set it up properly. Once you have this piece of tissue, um, you can perforate it to make it stretchy, like a bandage, right? And that's what the burn surgeons often do to cover large areas. Um, in dermatology, not everybody does that. Um, sometimes we just perforate it manually with like an 11 blade. Um, I don't have this device, this device for perforating. I don't know, do you use it in your practice? No. Um, but the burn surgeons do. You can see how in this picture, when you take that graft, um, you're just in the reticular dermis and you can see the little pinpoint bleeding. 
that's the perfect plane. Um, we typically use a rule of thumb of 0 0.15 to 0. Point, I'm sorry, 0 0.015 inches to 0 0.018 inches. It's really, really, really thin. <laughs> um, and there's an adjustment on the machine itself where you can, you can tweak it. I usually check and make sure it's a good um, thickness by using my 15 blade. And if I can just get the tip, the edge of the 15 blade in there, then I'm at the right thickness. So it's about the thickness of the edge of your 15 blade scalpel. Um, other points about split thickness graphs, the donor site is just left to granulate. You keep it moist, you keep it covered. That is usually much, much more painful than the recipient site. So patients have to be prepared for that as well. Um, and that's where they may need some help with pain control. There are two other types of graphs that we use in dermatology. Sometimes we take cartilage graphs. Um, I almost always take these from the ear. Um, I prefer a posterior approach, but often people do use an anterior approach as well. Um, cartilage sometimes is gone from most surgery. You know, if we've got a cancer that's eaten away at the nose, for instance, um, we may need to rebuild kind of the structure to protect the airway before we cover, cover it up with a flap. In plastics literature, sometimes you'll see um, cartilage graphs hosted from the ribs. Um, I don't know anybody in Durham who does that, but a lot of the ENTs and the plastics will use that in nasal reconstruction as well. And then there is something called a composite graft, where you take the cartilage, but you leave the perichondrium and the skin on, on top of it intact. Think about how thick that is. It's really hard to get a good blood supply to that, and so they have a, fi a higher failure rate than other types of grafts. Um, these are a little bit tricky to do, and unless you're working with a very experienced surgeon, I don't recommend you try a lot of composite grafts. Um, it's much better to get the cartilage graft and then cover it with a flap that has a good blood supply to the flap because that will help that cartilage to survive. So let's talk about some flaps. Broadly, we classify flaps based on the direction of movement. An advancement flap um, will be moving only in one direction. You have a very linear direction of movement. And I'll show you diagrams for all of these. Rotation flaps are as they sound. The movement is rotating. It's a circular movement. Transposition flaps, by definition, the, the flap is skipping over some intact skin. Um, and interpolation is coming from a distant location. And we'll go through these. So this is what an advancement flap looks like. In an advancement flap, all the movement is linear. So it's coming together. You know, most of it is, is the flap itself moving. You get a little bit of, of reverse pull from the other side. Um, Basically, all you're doing when you're, when you're designing these flaps is you're moving your burrow's triangles. So Dr. Carr was talking about a linear excision. If you were to do an elliptical excision here, you would do it like this, right? But if there's a reason, like an eyebrow in the way or a lip in the way or something, that you don't want to put a burrow's triangle here, you're basically just moving your burrow's triangle over. You're doing that on both the top and the bottom. 
And that's what you need to think about when you're designing an advancement flap, is where can I safely put this burrow's triangle so it's not going to interfere with other structures? This is most commonly um, described on the forehead. Um, I pulled this textbook picture, a pretty classic advancement flap design um, on the lateral forehead, and you can see that um, it heals beautifully. Most of these incision lines are right inside the creases of the forehead. And if you don't have enough movement in one direction, you can pull from the other direction as well. So this is a bilateral advancement flap. Now you're pulling from both sides of the wound in order to cover the defect. Now you've moved your burrow's triangles so that it's half here and it's half here and half here and half here. Um, so all you've done is split it and move it over. And um, this also is great for the forehead. It's also nice for the eyebrow, like diagrammed here, that you can preserve the eyebrow, keep all the hairs growing in the same direction. Um, I would say, though, in this example, I'd be careful because remember those nerves we talked about, right? So you have to think about the anatomy underlying um, and not, not transect any of those nerves. You have your supraorbital right about there and your supratrochlear right about there, right? So another way to approach this is um, to do an A to T advancement flap. So here, it's still an advancement flap like the last one, but you're only cutting, you're only cutting at, the, at one side of it. The other side, you're leaving the burrow's triangle in place. So the top half is just like your elliptical, and down here, you're basically splitting that burrow's triangle. So it's half over here and half over here. Your movement is still just directly in a line. So this is a bilateral advancement flap. It's called an A to T advancement flap because this kind of looks like an A and this kind of looks like an upside down T, right? So this is an A to T advancement flap. Um, people use this often around the lips and around the eyebrows, areas where, again, you don't want to disrupt a structure um, yeah. So then we'll move on to rotation. Now in a rotation flap, the movement is no longer linear, right? It's more curvilinear. It's in a circle. That's why it's, oops, that's why it's a rotation. So the movement is this way. It's in an arc. And you can see that, again, sometimes you have, a, you have to move a dog ear a little bit. Um, but this is really a, a nice way to close an area like the scalp where you have a big convex surface. Um, or you can do many versions of it on other areas, but I like it best for convex surfaces. That's where you'll see it the most. Sometimes these are really big on the scalp, and sometimes they're really little. Here's one I did on the nose a few weeks ago, and you can see that it's the same concept. It's just twisting and turning the tissue around, and it can heal very nicely and give you a little bit of a, a plumpness um, from that movement. If you can't get it closed with just one rotation flap, you can do two, right? Um, so just like with the advancement flaps, if one's not enough movement, then you can cut a second one. And so when we do that with the rotation flaps, 
We do them so that they lock in with each other, sort of a yin-yang kind of um, approach. And this is called the O to Z rotation flap. Um, maybe less commonly used than the single rotation flap. Also popular for the scalp, areas with a big convex surface. And then the fourth category is transposition flaps. So transposition means you're taking skin out, you're leaving it attached, but you're flipping over something normal to put it down. So here are the example, oops, sorry, I keep doing that. Um, here the example is you're moving up from the upper eyelid to the lower eyelid. Um, you're crossing over all this eye tissue and this eyelid skin that's not going anywhere. What did I do? This is my favorite flap, the rhombic flap. This is a transposition flap. And um, probably because in my fellowship, this was my, my mentor's favorite flap. Um, but if this defect is round, which most Mohs defects are, you can design an infinite number of, rot of rhombic flaps around it. You can choose your angle, and then you can choose whether to go up or down or left or right from that one. So you could do that to any degree, uh, 360 degrees around here. So it's a flap that has a lot of possibilities. Um, in designing this flap, we have to make this, this line same as the diameter of the wound. And then this angle should be about a 60 degree angle. And this should be the same distance as this. So we have one, two, three areas that are each the same length or distance. Um, and that's what's going to allow us to close up this wound. Um, here you can see this is the piece of tissue we're going to cut out. And we flip over this uninvolved skin to put that in here you end up with sort of a question mark shaped scar on the, on the patient. I was doing this lecture a few weeks ago with, one of my res with all of my residents, and one of them had a really hard time understanding, how does that work? How do you flip the tissue around? So we made a little video. I hope it will work for you. Can you play that, Brian? Thank you. And this just shows the movement, how you have to go up and over, you know. Um, and that's, that's the basic idea of a transposition flap, is you're moving tissue um, from below a wound into a wound. So I hope that that helps to understand the movement a little bit. Just like with the advancement flaps and the rotation flap, if one flap's not enough, you can do two, right? So a bilobe flap is basically two transposition flaps put together. Like a rhombic you can think of as a single one, and the bilobe has two lobes instead of one lobe. So this is another popular flap in derm surgery. We use this on the nose quite a bit. Um, and it's great for, for covering areas where it's a little bit convex again, but this is the most popular place to put it, is on the nose for sure. This first flap here is the same diameter as the wound that you're covering. And then the second one can be a little bit smaller. It gives you, so you're able to get a little bit smaller um, defect over here, secondary defect over here. We tuck our burrows triangle down this way on this flat. And so you end up with this sort of, you know, half heart shaped 
um, lying on the nose, um, which on a, on a sebaceous nose can sometimes require a little bit of derm abrasion or lasering or something, something to help with the scarring down the road. Um, if their nose isn't very sebaceous, a lot of times you don't need to do anything. And then the fourth category of flaps that I wanted you to be aware of are interpolation flaps. There's really two that we use most commonly in Mohs. The first is the paramedium forehead flap, and this is where we're taking skin from the forehead and using it to rebuild a nose. And the other is a melolabial interpolation flap where we're taking skin from the nasolabial fold, again using it to, to rebuild the nose. Um, these are flaps that are left attached, so the blood supply is coming through. Oh. The blood supply is coming through, the, through the, the connection, the bridge, between the donor site and the recipient site, and it's left intact for a couple of weeks before it's separated. Um, we use these when we have a big defect to cover, um, and it's a little bit more traumatic for the patient because it's a second surgery two or three weeks later to take it down. And with the paramedium forehead flap, you can see that they have a little bit of a, a stalk here. Um, that lingers for a couple of weeks. But when you have a large defect on the nose, you can see this is too big for a rhombic flap or a bilobe flap to be able to cover it. And when cartilage is missing, sometimes we have to take cartilage from the ear and put that in the wound base first in order to put the flap, and then put the flap on top to cover it. If you don't replace the cartilage, then when the patient breathes in through their nose, then the, the airway collapses. So if you've had to remove cartilage with the Mohs surgery, then you have to replace it so that they don't have a compromised airway. Um, and if you're not sure whether it's compromised or not, you can just close the other side of their nose and ask them to breathe in and see what happens. You know, you can see if there's a lot of cartilage missing, that airway just sucks in like a vacuum, it closes up. But these do really, really well. You know, it's a, it's a little more work for us. It's a, a little traumatic for the patient. Um, this was last, I don't know, summer, maybe? Um, and we designed these flaps by finding here, um, remember we were talking about the nerves and the arteries up here, right? So up in the supratrochlear notch, there's a nerve, but there's also an artery. And that artery provides the blood supply to the middle part of the forehead. And that's what's giving the blood supply to this flap. So we designed the flaps so that we've got about a centimeter to a centimeter and a half of skin around this artery. Sometimes people even use a Doppler ultrasound to find the artery before cutting the flap. But um, and then we cut the flap up and we measure it. We measure up here how much skin we need to cover the defect down here. You can do that with um, like a telfa. You can do that just with gauze. But you need something to physically approximate, something that you can you can hold here and pull up and then pull down and see if you've got the right length and dimensions in order to cover the wound. Once you do design your flap, we cut down all the way to the subgaleal plane because um, you have less bleeding there. And we can usually pull most of this together, if not all of it. You could see I couldn't completely close this forehead on this gentleman. Um, but when I took down his flap, I think it was probably three weeks later, um, I took this skin and debulked it and used it as a skin graft on the forehead. And that works beautifully to help close these. If that's not an option, you can just let it granulate and it does heal very nicely on the forehead. 
it's pretty rare that we're able to close that forehead completely primarily. Uh, if the wound is big enough on the nose to require a forehead flap, then usually you're going to have to leave something to heal up here. Uh, this is a, another approach. So if the wound is really on the side of the nose um, and you've lost cartilage, you've had to replace it, you need a flap with a good blood supply to cover that cartilage and protect it, then a melolabial interpolation flap is not a bad idea. We have an artery with anastomosis, right, from the dorsal nasal artery all the way down to the angular artery here. And there's, so there's great blood supply in this area. And we can use that, design a flap where we take tissue from here, and this is what's going to cover the nose, right there. We leave it attached with a little stalk. This part we leave attached, this part we cut out. And then we can stitch up from here to here, leave the stalk intact, and sew the flap right onto the nose. And then again, two or three weeks later, we come and we separate that connection. And what's left behind, the scars are really nicely tucked in and look good. So here's an example of that. This lady was sweet. She called this her peanut. She held onto her peanut for three weeks before we cut it out. <laughs> um, but she was very pleased with how this all healed and settled. And you can see it's pretty symmetrical and she got a good cosmetic result from this kind of a repair. You just have to have the right patient with the right mentality to, to do these interpolation flaps. Another flap I wanted to mention is an island pedicle flap. Um, some people would put this in the category of an advancement flap. Uh, sometimes it's called the V to Y advancement flap. Um, there used to be a separate code for island pedicle flaps. It's no longer. Now it's just considered another, um, I guess, advancement flap. And what we do here is we cut out a piece of tissue and then we advance it or you know, move it this direction up into the wound. We can sew this part together in a line like you see here. And this, thus it gets the name V to Y, um, V to Y advancement. This is often used uh, in the nasolabial fold, sometimes on the cheek, but I've seen people use it on the nose. Um, and other areas. So it's just another tool to have. The, the key here is you're leaving all the deep tissue still attached. Um, so this is not a graft. We're not cutting this off of the wound base. We're leaving it attached and just scooting it over. Um, and that's what gives it the, the pedicle. Um, the pedicle underneath is the fatty tissue and the dermis and the blood supply um, from underneath the wound. All right, so before we move on to suturing, let's, take, let's wake everybody up and let's take some questions about flaps and grafts. You guys know. <laughs> no questions about any of that? All right. Suturing techniques. Dr. Carr covered a lot of these, didn't he? Um, so, when talking about suturing, I always start with the basics, and I know he covered some of this. I hate to repeat too much of it. Um, this is the workhorse in derm surgery as far as getting your, your complex closure or even your flaps closed is the dermal buried vertical mattress stitch. 
and Dr. Carr went over this nicely with you. Um, I, I tell my residents the key here to get this nice bite and come through here, it's all in the wrist. You really have to use your wrist when you throw this stitch. If you just, if you're kind of just pushing with your arm and you're not throwing it, you're not going to get this nice bite. So when you're, when you're doing these sutures, really think about, about twisting your arm and using your wrist as you throw it. It really helps. Um, and this is the key to eversion. See this beautiful eversion here? Um, like Dr. Carr said, if you can do these well, um, then sometimes you don't even need epidermal sutures. But if you want to run an epidermal suture on here, it's super easy to do when these are placed nicely. The other important thing I think about these is that these are, these are going to be here for a couple of months, these dermal sutures. And so um, if you've done them well, then when you take out your top layer of stitches, you can still feel good that this wound's not going to open up because you have such a good closure with your dermal, your dermal sutures. Um, so this is really how you should be closing most of these wounds is with these dermal sutures. And then the epidermis doesn't really matter what you do if these are good. And he went through these again, so I don't know how much you want to hear about running stitches and simple interrupted stitches. Every medical student probably knows how to do some simple interrupted sutures and hopefully a running suture as well. Um, but they, you know, this is how you're going to close your epidermis, and if your dermal sutures are in there well, then this is very easy. Common mistakes I see, um, it's important when you enter the epidermis with your suture needle that you enter at a, at a 90 degree angle. Um, sometimes people want to come in sort of oblique, and then you don't get your good eversion anymore. You kill whatever you've just done with your eversion. So make sure you're aware of that when you're throwing these, um, and that's what's going to help to keep your scar nice and flat instead of a depression. And that's the running stitch that I showed you guys earlier and, and um, Dr. Carr showed you earlier as well. It's just your simple interrupted stitch, but instead of tying it every time, you just keep going and tie it at both ends. So it's quick. One point about these, these can unravel. So if your dermal sutures are good, then you're, you don't worry if these unravel. Um, but if you're trying to use this as a primary means of keeping your wound together, you're going to have some trouble. So only do these running sutures when you've, when you've really closed things nicely with your dermal sutures. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here. <laughs> um, simple interrupted. I guess the key point here is this entry. See how it's at 90 degrees? Just make sure you put your needle in at 90 degrees. A lot of people tend to want to come this way, um, and it's, it's a, it doesn't turn out well. So enter 90 degrees, you'll get good eversion that way. Another nice thing to think about is sometimes you're trying to put a wound together and you've got thick skin next to thin skin. You can use your interrupted sutures to correct this, um, and you do that just by taking a more shallow bite on the thick side and a deeper bite on the thin side, and you can see how you can correct that step off and pull them together. So that's something to think about when you're trying to approximate your epidermis. Pulley sutures are really useful. Um, I love pulley sutures because sometimes if you don't have an assistant or you don't have a good assistant, um, this can make the difference between something not quite coming together and everything coming together really easily. 
Um, a basic pulley stitch over here um, is an external stitch. The knot is out on the outside. Um, and with a basic pulley, what we teach our residents here is you go far, near, near, far when you're going through here. So you want to go far away from the wound edge, usually like, I don't know, four or five millimeters, and all the way through deep, and you come out closer, maybe two millimeters. Then you go in close, and then you come out far. And when you do that, it basically halves the tension across the suture. So you can pull it together much more easily than if you had just done one loop through there. Sometimes I leave these in, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'll just throw a big one in, leave it while I put in all my dermal sutures, and then come back and take it out and not even leave it in as the patient goes home. So it can be used as sort of an intraoperative tool, or if it's a tight closure on the scalp or the back and you want to just leave it, you can, but you have to realize it could leave a, a mark a little bit far away from the wound. It could leave a track mark. So I like to use a buried pulley suture because these, these you can leave and they don't leave any marks at all on the skin. And it's basically exactly, I don't have a, a diagram of the buried pulley, but I have the dermal vertical mattress, and you're basically throwing two of them together. So you do your first vertical mattress, and instead of tying right here, you throw another one right next to it, and then everything pulls together so beautifully, and you tie it there, um, and you've just saved yourself the external markings of the other pulley suture. So it's basically just taking that tension and distributing it across more tissues. So you have more friction to pull things together but it's a nice little trick to use when you're on your own or you don't have a good assistant to help you pull things together. I think Dr. Carr went over some of the mattress sutures as well, but it's good to know how to do these and to have them up your sleeve because every now and then, it's great to pull out a mattress suture to help you with eversion of a wound um, or if there's an area that's tight or you're worried about hemostasis. So I use the horizontal mattress on the scalp if I'm worried about hemostasis. You know, somebody's oozy, they're on Coumadin or whatever. Um, and the vertical mattress just gives you a really nice eversion. They're named what they're named. This confused me as a medical student. But the vertical, you can see how one is stacked on top of the other, the two little loops. That's why it's vertical. The horizontal, they're side by side underneath the tissue here. So if that helps. I threw in some of my other favorite sutures here. Running locked. I like to lock my running sutures on high tension areas. Um, that just means that when you come out, you go through your loop before you do the next loop. Um, and it's better for hemostasis than a standard running suture. It doesn't take any more time than a running suture, so that's nice. Um, and it you know, it's a quick way to make sure you have good hemostasis, basically. It also probably has a lower risk of coming unraveled, although I don't see sutures unravel much, so hard to know. I have a colleague who loves a running horizontal mattress. Um, this is good for eversion. It does give you very, very nice eversion. It's really hard to take out later, though. <laughs> so that's the downside of using this suture. Um, you're basically just doing your horizontal mattresses all the way through. 
Um, and on the surface, it looks kind of neat because it's like steps across the, across the wound. Um, but in two weeks, when you try to take them out, these tend to pull down and get really hard to, to dig out. So um, that can be problematic for your staff. Like David, I love the running subcuticular suture. Um, I like these on the extremities and the trunk. I like them in patients that I think are not really going to be very compliant with uh, minimizing activity. You know, um, I don't know. I had a an attorney who does a lot of kickboxing recently. I used this on his shoulder because I knew that he wasn't going to stay out of his gym for more than a week. You know. Um, here, at least I know I'm not removing any sutures. I, I use Vicryls when I do these, and I just leave them. Um, and so I feel like they have a little bit of, it takes two or three months to break down. They have a little bit more time to give some support to that wound. You can do this with proline or nylon and pull it out in a couple of weeks. Sometimes they're kind of hard to get out. Um, so I've seen cases where they've broken off when the staff was trying to pull them out, and they bring me in to try and dig out the rest. That's not pretty. <laughs> um, so I prefer to do them with Vicryl. That said, Vicryl has its downsides too because as the suture breaks down um, in a couple of months, sometimes they'll get a little suture granuloma. Um, so you might tell them that if they get a little pimple along the wound in a couple of months to come in and you'll pull that suture out for them. This is my favorite, yes, sure. Mm-hmm. With a Vicryl? Okay, so the question is, um, how, do you, how do you tie off here? Um, what I do is I do a, a buried mattress suture, so just like a standard dermal stitch. Um, I'm using Vicryl, which I'm not going to pull out, so I throw that, that deep suture in, and I don't, I don't cut both ends. I just cut off the tail end, and then I leave it attached and run through. And then I bury another one here, um, and I come out away from the wound, like this, distant from the wound, and then cut down to the surface. It's a good question. This figure eight stitch is my favorite thing for punch biopsies. Um, you know when you guys do a punch biopsy and something's just bleeding and the wound's so small, you're never going to get a hyphercator in there. Um, and usually you don't have anybody to help you, you're on your own. Um, this figure eight stitch really pulls it together nicely. It's sort of like two stitches in one. Um, so when I was a resident, this was like the best thing ever. Um, you enter like you would just throwing a simple interrupted, but instead of coming across, you go to the to the diagonal part of the wound and you come out here and then you enter and you cross it underneath and tie it on the surface. So it sort of looks like two stitches on the surface but there's this X underneath and you only have one knot to tie so it's fast um, and you can get that, that punch biopsy site closed up quickly um, and get the bleeding to stop much more quickly. And Dr. Carr covered these corner tip stitches already. Um, there's kind of a three-point variant and a four-point variant if you're like on an A to T advancement flap like this. Um, but it's basically the same idea, um, that you're trying not to put any stitches right through the tip of the flap so that you don't cause the flap to die at the tip and get a little dead spot. 
and the purse string suture. Um, people always forget about the purse string suture, but it's actually a really nice way to get a big wound to be small quickly. It doesn't look pretty, you know. Um, but I like these on the scalp. If you have a big, deep, tight wound on the scalp and you're either gonna have to lift half the scalp to do some big rotation or just pull it together with a purse string, sometimes just shrinking the wound by putting a purse string all the way around and, and cinching it tight um, and then allowing it to granulate in the middle will give you very nice, rapid healing and good cosmetic results. Um, I also like it in melanoma surgery on the scalp because or other rare tumors, anything you're worried about, um, are they gonna need lymph node biopsies, is, you know, are you, are you worried about distorting tissue, um, then this doesn't distort any tissue or any drainage, and so it's a nice way to just pull it together a little bit, um, and if you're waiting on final pathology, for instance, and you're not quite sure if you got all the margins out, this is a nice thing you can do to get healing going, um, but not prevent yourself from being able to do what needs to be done down the road. So it's a, a nice thing to think about. Um, if you're doing a purse string, you should, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, you should use something that's non-braided, that's gonna flow through the tissue, pull through the tissue nicely. You can use proline, you can use nylon. I like to use Maxon, 3.0 Maxon is my favorite for this. Um, but all of these are good, good choices. And you can run it through the deep dermis, but a lot of times the dermis is kind of friable. Sometimes I'll run it, um, sometimes I'll run it instead through the epidermis and just kind of big bites in and out around the outside of the epidermis and then cinch it together. When pulling it together, I tie the knot and then just like if you're wrapping a present, you put a finger on and then tie over it. I have my medical assistant put the tip of their, their suture scissors on um, over my suture, and they hold that down while I tie the knot, and that prevents it from opening back up. Um, so that's, that's the way that I like to approach these, and it works out well. All right, let's see what you learned. Post-test. Back to the grafts. So why do we use full thickness instead of split thickness skin grafts? A, full thickness, better survival, better cosmesis, larger areas, exposed areas, or contraction. Good. So those of you that answered A, no. Full thickness does not have better survival over low blood supply. Full thickness skin grafts are thick, so they need more blood supply. So if the wound base doesn't have a good blood supply, you're not gonna have good survival with a full thickness graft. Um, but those of you that answered B, you're right. It definitely looks better in the end. Post-test two, which is not considered a type of transposition flap. A, a rhombic flap, B, a bilobed flap, C, A to T flap, or D, nasolabial flap. Good, the A to T flap is an advancement flap. And finally, what's the main advantage of this suturing technique, the running simple suture? Hemostasis, wound diversion, or speed of placement?
good. All right, get up and stretch. <laughs> this has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.